Good evening, everyone. My name is Nikos Tsafos, and I'm a senior fellow with the Energy and National Security Program here at uh, CSIS. Um, and it's a great pleasure uh, to have Eric Varnes uh, here today to talk about Equinor's uh, energy perspectives. I always uh, enjoy listening to Eric's take on the world, uh, one, because he's incredibly thoughtful, uh, but also his way of presenting uh, this complicated topic is uh, very accessible and he's always very frank. And so I, I really appreciate um, him coming to CSIS to share uh, Equinor's latest uh, perspectives uh, on the long-term outlook for, uh, for our energy system. Um, Eric has a, a number of roles. He's a VP in macroeconomics and market analysis, chief economist, and also head of strategy for mid and downstream for uh, Equinor. Equinor is the state-owned company of uh, Norway, formerly known as uh, Statoil. Um, and so uh, he will present uh, the outlook, and then I'm going to ask him a few questions, and then we're going to bring you all in. Uh, so with that short introduction, uh, please uh, help me welcome Eric to stage. Thanks. Uh, thanks a lot for the kind introduction. Good afternoon, everybody. And uh, it's a pleasure to be here back in Washington, back at the CSAS, and uh, present the ninth edition of uh, Equinor's uh, Energy Perspectives, where we try to speculate about where the world energy markets, uh, uh, energy balances uh, might go. Uh, and uh, we're the first to admit that uh, we basically have no idea, so we, so we have to make scenarios. When you look far enough into the future, then the uncertainty becomes such that uh, the, the possible outcome space is extremely wide. Um, I do this as uh, chief economist in, in, uh, in Equinor. We're an energy company, uh, and as part of the work there, I'm responsible for putting in place uh, uh, energy balances for all kinds of energy carriers and give that as input to, to our uh, chief executive committee in terms of uh, giving advice on what prices to use uh, for investment uh, projections, et cetera, et cetera. And then it's natural to put on top of that work, we summarize that in this report um, as, a, as a, piece of, a piece of work that where we hope to contribute to a fact-based discussion and be challenged and challenged back maybe as well. Uh, and uh, just to underline, this is a piece of independent analytical work uh, my boss or or the whole corporate executive committee did not read a word of this report except the CEO's uh, preface and before it was published. So the benefit of that is, of course, that uh, that uh, also the executive committee in Equinor is completely free to to choose other input when they when they use uh, when they make their decisions. So that's what I'm going to do. Uh, when you ask the question where the global energy markets might be moving, uh, the answer to that question depends very much on what window you look out of, what uh, the sectors you're focusing on, what countries you're in, uh, what policies you think will be important, what technologies might make a dent in, in the development. And when you look out at different windows, uh, you get very different signals. So on the one hand, last year, energy demand was increasing. Uh, fossil fuels increased, fortunately. Gas is the fossil fuel that increases the most. So we get a slightly carbon uh, car, car, less carbon intensive package of fossil fuels in there. Renewable costs are continuing to come down. We don't know how much and for how long and how profitable renewable investments will be going into the future now as, uh, as the subsidized prices and the guaranteed prices are, are rapidly disappearing because of the cost reduction. So we'll see that. So that's one signal that we see. Another signal is that as a consequence of fossil fuel demand going up, CO2 emissions are rising by 2% last year, up to 33 billion tons. 
we had three years of flat emissions from 2014 to 2016, and pe some people thought that we had reached the peak. Not so, increasing in 17, increasing again in 2018, partly driven by cold demand, which again was partly driven by a cold winter in, in China. And uh, the geopolitical climate is not at all conducive to fighting climate change. Uh, we, we're living in a world where we see increasing signals of polarization, bigger than neighbor type of policies, slowing down the necessary technology development, slowing down economic growth, focusing more on security of supply, uh, leading then to use more indigenous resources rather than importing a lower carbon fuel from your neighbor if you don't trust him or her, etc. So if that continues, the chances of reaching climate targets uh, become very, very slim. Oh, sorry, I'm too quick. Let's see, it works here. So, but then on the other hand, we see some positive signals as well. So more carbon is now expect, exposed to a price than previously. So far, a very low price. Uh, we see EV sales taking off in some economies where it matters, not only in the very small economy of Norway, as an example, but, but uh, the Chinese EV sales are increasing rapidly. Uh, the Chinese car sales are large as well, and not increasing that much, but it's still a very small part of roughly 17, 18, 20 million cars every year being put on the road, but it, there's significant signals of change, change. And we had record capacity additions of renewable electricity again last year. So there are positive signals if you're concerned with achieving climate targets. So and then what we've done is with all that uncertainty, we've tried to develop different histories of the future, different scenarios. Two of them are depicting where the world would be going or could be going if current trends, some different trends, but current trends dominate the development. And we call them the reform and the rivalry scenario. Same names as, as last year, but we updated and modified some of the assumptions there. And reform case builds on the assumption that markets and technology will drive the development supported by policies. Every country will deliver on their nationally determined contributions in the Paris Agreement, the promises given by 2030, and after that, energy and climate policies will be further tightened. So we'll see a significantly much more energy efficient world going forward than we are at the moment. Uh, the geopolitical climate is relatively benign. So international competition is relatively friendly. We have comparative advantage determining who produces what, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a, it's a relatively good development. With one exception, CO2 emissions from the energy sector peak in 2030, but only comes very, very moderately down. We're not even close to achieving climate targets. So much more is needed than the country's pledges in the Paris Agreement. Sorry. The rivalry case, I got to get used to this clicker. The rivalry case is building on a different trend that is very visible, and that's we cannot exclude the possibility that geopolitical uncertainty and conflict, polarization, bigger than neighbor policies, sanctions, that we don't like everybody, will continue to dominate the development. In such a situation, we will have lower economic growth than in a reform case. We'll have uh, slower technology development. Uh, we will have slightly, uh, slightly uh, lower uh, development of the technologies that are needed to replace some of the indigenous resources that we've got to get out of if we are to achieve climate targets. First and foremost, coal. So in such a scenario, we have a, a, a less efficient uh, energy sector, less efficient economy. We use more energy per dollar of GDP and the carbon intensity is higher, and CO2 emissions continue to rise. And then we have put on a normative hat, and we make a scenario saying, where does the world have to go if we're serious about climate targets? 
So that's not a that's not a positive analysis. It's a normative analysis. It's a backcast. We use a carbon budget from the IPCC and IEA, and what what does it what does that need to develop, according to, in order for us to be reasonably sure that we that we arrive at the 1.7 1.8 degree warming? Roughly, we're not climate scientists, but so we call it a well below. But it is in line with what IEA and the IPCC says is a 1.7 1.8 degree scenario. Then we need immediate changes, and we need coordinated policy changes. We basically need a miracle tomorrow or yesterday, because we need a peak in emissions now in order to, for us to make it possible to believe that we can have 2.6% annual average economic growth to 2050 and achieving those carbon budgets. It's an enormously challenging change, and we only think it can happen in a very benign geopolitical context. Uh, to, in, in a cooperative atmosphere. Uh, otherwise, we could, I mean, you can make this in different ways, but then the combination of global economic growth and achieving these targets probably requires that type of geopolitical environment. As a result of these three scenarios, then we get very wi widely differing outcomes, enormous variation in some of the variables, and I show some of them here. I'll come back to, to some of them throughout, throughout the presentation. In all scenarios, the global economy will be at least twice as large as today, driven by population growth and productivity development. Mo highest growth in the renewal case, so we'll end up at the highest GDP level by 2050 there. And of course, CO2 emissions vary enormously, going down more than 60% in the renewal case, continuing to grow in the rivalry case slightly. Uh, oil demand, 100% variation, is a really terrible forecast from a chief economist in, in an energy company, but that's what it is. 52 to 118 million barrels per day. We have gas demand up 20% or down 20%. We're absolutely certain that uh, the, uh, the penetration of solar and wind turbine electricity will grow significantly in the electricity sector, up from the 7% it constitutes today to somewhere between 30 and 50%. 50% is what it has to become. And we also see a massive growth in the fleet of electric vehicles as part of the necessary decarbonization of transport and transition. And in the case of the renewal scenario, we have 1.3 billion electric vehicles on the roads in 2050. And by then, they will constitute more than 90% of the fleet. And it's necessary. It's not a given that it will happen, but it's necessary. Uh, humankind has never gone through a true energy transition. Everything we've done when we reach, when we find a new energy source is that we've added it on to what we already had, an energy addition. If we are to reach climate targets, we need a true energy transition, where we replace existing fuel use with new technologies. And that has to be done in the context, that energy transition has to be done in the context of wider sustainability goals. And those that signed the Paris Agreement was very aware of that. And part of the picture is that we have growing population, probably somewhere between two and two and a half billion people more by 2050, and that doesn't vary by scenario, by the way, in our assumptions. That drives, with, cap, with investments and productivity development, drives the GDP figures to the right there. And then those that signed the Paris Agreement put in place in, this, in the agreement a, um, a paragraph saying that this energy transition is, is going to take place in the context of equity, so it has to be a just transition, uh, in the wider context of sustainability, which are these 17 development goals, I, which were signed the same fall, by the way, in 2015, I put out three of them here, no poverty, access to clean and affordable energy, and climate action, but there are many more. 
and all of them, more or less, are associated with energy in one way or the other. And we should, this should also take place, what they said in the Paris Agreement, while eradicating poverty. And all those sustainable development goals in some dimensions may make it, this energy transition even more difficult. Because some of the, achieving some of these sustainable development goals will require more energy and will drive energy demand, as an example. In the reform and rivalry scenario that we see developing today, what will happen? Well, world primary energy demand to the left will, in some of these scenarios, grow by 20 to 30%. And we see that the light blue, I hope it's blue on this one too, yeah, the light blue part of that will be visible. Uh, the new renewable share of world primary energy demand will become a significant part in both those scenarios. Massive growth in new renewables, also in a reform and rivalry scenario. But look, this is an energy addition. The fossil fuel share, or the, not the fossil fuel share, but the absolute levels here are unchanged or actually increasing. So both the reform and rivalry are transitions in terms of massive changes in the energy mix, but additions in terms of actually requiring more primary energy. In the middle, we have, we're going to use much more electricity. We think electricity is something that is happening, something that has to happen very rapidly to make this uh, energy transition possible have to go towards electricity and then de decarbonize the electricity. Most of the growth in electricity generation will come from wind turbines and solar panels and some other sources of new renewables. And also we, we have 30 to 40% growth in nuclear energy globally in those two scenarios as well. But we have basically unchanged use of fossil fuels in the electricity sector in those two scenarios. And as a consequence of all this, CO2 emissions continue to grow or just decline very moderately. So more is needed. And what is that? This is where the world needs to go. We have the renewal scenario to the left there. In a, so we have primary energy demand going down. We think it's possible, but we have to hurry up, to deliver a global economy that is 2.2 times larger, delivering on the climate targets. And in order to do that, we need energy intensity to improve, improve so much that world global primary energy demand is less than today, 11% lower. And now you can see how much less fossil fuels we will use in that scenario compared to today. Electricity will continue to grow, grow much faster, relatively speaking. And in spite of this being a more energy efficient scenario, we'll almost use the same amount of electricity there as in the reform case. And half of that electricity will come from wind turbines and solar panels, light green. We take out most of the fossil fuels in the electricity sector. We have to increase nuclear by 80%. That's part of the green in the middle. And as a consequence, that's what CO2 emissions look like. That path is not a walk in the park. It's not easy. It's by design. We have made that scenario so that we follow that carbon budget line, which is necessary to achieve a well below two degree climate target. And then this is the energy efficiency developments and the rate of electrification and focusing on a renewal scenario. That light, the light green line there, green line there, it's a three times as rapid improvement in energy intensity as what we have seen over the last 30 years. Over the last 30 years, on average, energy intensity, so the use of energy as a share of global GDP, has gone down by 0.9% per year. So 3% economic growth, if that was the result, we would use 2.1% more energy every year. 3 minus 0.9. Going forward, 2.6% GDP growth, 
2.8% energy intensity improvement so that energy demand falls by 2.2 percentage points every year. And this is after all kinds of adaptations by the customers, by the consumers, who will have more income, more purchasing power in this economy, facing something that is more efficient, using more energy. And then what do we tend? We tend to buy more of something that is cheaper and when we can afford it. And this figure is after all those adaptations. And when we see now, that, I mean, what I say, probably a little bit incorrect, but the, I mean, the first thing people buy when they move into new cities in emerging economies is a refrigerator. They already have a TV and a cell phone. The second thing they buy is a car, if they can afford it and have room. The third thing they buy is a, an air conditioning equipment. We now see air conditioning demand as one source of in energy demand increase in emerging economies, in particular since the temperature is increasing. And then the fourth thing they buy, if they can afford it, is probably an airline ticket. All of that raises energy demand. And in the case of a refrigerator, when it becomes more efficient, you tend to buy a bigger one, use a little bit of that, and then you move, if you have room for it, you move the old one down in the basement as a beer cooler, and you double your use of electricity. And that's in, that type of adaptation is also in this, and which makes it difficult, even more difficult. Electricity has to go up because that's one way of achieving much more efficient use of energy. And we foresee in a renewal case a doubling of the rate of electrification compared to what we've had historically, so that electricity as a share of total final energy consumption grows to 40%, close to 40 We will not be 100% electric. We'll be twice as electric as today, if you like. But 60% of energy use in that scenario will still be involving using a molecule, burning a molecule or using a molecule. Not everything can be or need to be electrified by 2050 in order for us to achieve climate targets. What else is needed? I mentioned the 80% re uh, increase in nuclear, 80% reduction in coal demand. More than half of global coal is today used in China. The Chinese economy might be four times larger in 2050. They need more energy as part of that, and they have to go out of their main resource, which is coal. In India, the challenge is probably even bigger, even though they use much less coal, because they're an energy-poor country. They have a lot of people without access to energy. They use a lot of biomass. One of the reasons why New Delhi is much more polluted than Beijing, they got a good, but it doesn't count in their CO2 emission accounts. So out of biomass, electrify, not use your own coal, because that's what they have in India as an indigenous resource. And they will be 15% more densely populated in 20. 40 onwards than the Netherlands is today. And we have to put in place a lot of solar panels and wind turbine parks, so they have to do that, with, hopefully with our assistance. Um, and you could question where, is that, where are those going to be in a densely populated country. That's what ha has to happen on coal. 12-fold increase in solar and wind turbine capacity as part of that scenario, producing half of the global electricity needed by 2050. and in order to make the net emissions come down, we need carbon capture and storage 40 times more than we have today, mainly in the remaining manufacturing sectors that use carbon as, a, as an input in their manufacturing, so cement factories and steel, etc. because we've taken out most of the fossil fuels in the electricity sector uh, by renewables and efficiency improvements. But we don't have a lot of carbon capture and storage there. One and a half billion tons of carbon. Does anybody have an intimate relationship to how much that is? It's relative to other two-degree scenarios, we're very modest. 
on how much carbon capture and storage we need. But we need more, and we cannot exclude that we need much more, but at least we have to start doing it. One and a half billion tons of carbon, carbon dioxide, is twice as much mass as the world produces and consumes in terms of wheat every year. It's almost as much as the global steel production. So it's a massive challenge to have all that gas taken out of pipe stacks, put in a pipeline, transported, pressurized, put in a reservoir or somewhere, somebody guarantees that it doesn't leak for 200 years. But it has to happen. And it's not happening sufficiently fast. And if it starts to happen, hopefully it can happen even faster than what we're looking at here. One and a half billion tons by 2050. We need a one million ton facility being finished every week from now to 2050 to deliver that. This is um, then the forecast where I'm really embarrassed about the, the sort of the precision, right? Because the oil demand in these scenarios vary a lot. And the renewal case needs to, oil demand needs to peak today and then come down slowly, but a lot, down to 52 million barrels per day. In the reform case, it continues to grow to roughly around 2030, where sort of the efficiency impact and electrification impact in the West uh, is compensating for the growth in the car fleet and increased car demand in emerging economies. So by 2030, it comes down. In that renewal case, we have 50, more than 50% of all new cars put on the road in 2030 being electric. That's 40 million cars. 40 million new electric vehicles by 2030, 10 years from now, that has to happen. In order to give that reduction in the transport oil demand over there. Much more efficient aircraft engines, uh, much more efficient logistics, so we, don't, we have much fewer trucks in that scenario than we have in the other two scenarios, in spite of having three, four billion new middle class consumers buying stuff, needing logistics. That's what has to happen. And we think it's possible, but things have to happen rapidly. We need a carbon price to make that hap happen as well, in addition to efficiency standards, car producers delivering what they have to do, what they're saying they will deliver, et cetera, et cetera. Charging infrastructure in cities so that people buy electric vehicles when they are available for them, et cetera, et cetera. In that scenario, oil demand goes down in all uses, in all sectors, with one exception. Mostly in transport, because transport constitutes more than half of oil demand today. The one exception is feedstock in the petrochemical industry. We think that demand will continue to increase, even though in a renewal scenario we have much more efficient handling of plastic waste, some recycling, some more than we do today. But still, growing demand from a population that grows, that becomes more affluent, that needs one billion more houses than we have today, that need office buildings, with meeting chairs, with cell phones, with makeup, with toothpaste, with everything else we make out of hydrocarbons. That's the, but that's the part of the hydrocarbon molecule that is not burnt. It's contained in the product. And if we are able to decarbonize the industrial processes around it, at least, at least it doesn't contribute as much to the CO2 problem. And then on gas, slightly less variation in the, in the outlooks. Gas demand continues to grow in all scenarios to around 2030, and then it has to taper off relatively quickly in the renewal case. And the reason why it doesn't taper off before is that in, with a tighter carbon budget, as we have now in this scenario compared to last year, and we've last year spent 33 billion tons of the carbon budget we had, 
we have to take coal so fast out of the electricity mix uh, that we do that before renewables and nuclear are ready to take over. So we need some more gas in the power sector in the transition, but then by the time we get to 2030, we better hurry to get gas out of the mix to achieve the carbon budgets, and then nuclear and renewables have a larger possibility to replace. So that's why that you get that relatively steep decline at the end. Gas demand in the renewal scenario falls in every developed economy or every developed region in the world. Uh, in the emerging economies, some of the emerging economies, gas demand will continue to grow, and significantly so, for instance, in China and India. And, and the Chinese growth in gas demand in that scenario is almost equal to a new Europe. So it's a large chunk of growth. Uh, we don't think they will satisfy all that demand themselves by indigenous supply, so there will be ample room for gas exports to China, whether you're Russian, Australian, Qatari, or North American uh, supplier of LNG. This is what oil and gas demand looks like in North America, uh, which is an example of the changes that we have to do in, in developed economies. Uh, they're a little bit different from different for different regions, but basically the story is that oil demand has basically peaked in the OECD area, both in the reform and definitely in the renewal case. In the rivalry, we have a slight increase even in North America, not, not so in Europe. And on the gas demand side, a very rapid decline once you pass 2030. That's the development we have to undertake here. And then the question, with those demand forecasts, what about new need for new investments in oil and gas? And these are the demand ranges. They're, they're really wide forecast on oil, not so wide for gas. That's the demand for oil and gas. If we stopped in the energy industry in the world today, stopped exploration, we stopped all investments on top of resources that have been discovered, we know are there, but there is no capital on top of them. So we can't deliver. We, we miss infrastructure. Uh, and we only did a little bit of uh, what we call EOR, enhanced oil recovery and enhanced gas recovery. Global supply of oil from ex fields that are currently, currently delivering or just about to deliver would probably decline by 4.5% per year. In the report we say 3 to 6. 4.5% per year for 30 years. If somebody declines by 4.5% per, for 30 years, after 30 years, you end up at 25% of where you started. So global supply of oil, in that case, would be 25 million barrels per day. And the demand in the renewal case is 52. And the same story for gas. That means that that whole white area in there is demand that is not, not satisfied by supply from existing fields. So we have to do something to make sure that that happens. And that's either to increase oil recovery either more, much more. That's, we have to do that. We have to invest on top of existing resources that we know are there. And we have probably to make some exploration, new discoveries. In particular, if we want to avoid using too much carbon inefficient oil sands or extra heavy oil. Because we, need, we also need oil and gas of a specific quality in a renewal scenario. 300 billion barrels of new oil at least, depending on scenario, it could be much more. We don't have a very intimate relationship to 300 billion barrels either, but as an example, it's almost as much oil as OPEC has delivered over the last 30 years. 
in a well below two degrees scenario. And when you look at the gas gap, there are 62,000 trillion cubic meters. Over the next 30 years, that's more gas than the combined deliveries of Russia, United States, and all of the Middle East over the last 30 years. Coming from something that doesn't deliver oil today, where we actually need an activity, we need a brain, we need investments to make sure we can deliver that type of hydrocarbon to global markets. In addition, the energy sector will be investing a lot in renewable electricity. And an example here is the capacity additions in wind turbines and, and solar panels. And you can add on to that grids, backup, storage, whatever, in the power sector to facilitate that growth in electricity demand. Increasingly, as time goes by and this industry becomes larger and older, we will have to invest quite a bit in capacity just to avoid capacity from falling when we take obsolete wind turbines and solar panels out of the mix. They become 20, 25 years old. And that's the dark part of those columns. We have to do that as well. And in a situation where we're not particularly certain about what type of regulation will we have in electricity markets, how will, regulation, how will electricity markets operate when you have half of the generation coming from something where we don't control the, the production, uh, and it costs zero to produce when the sun shines and the wind uh, blows. So what type of, of investment proposition is that to a professional investor? How do we, we had 140 hours of negative electricity prices in Germany last year. Had to pay to get rid of it if you had a wind turbine that was swerving, going around when the wind was blowing. So the regulatory aspects of electricity markets is also an interesting challenge. And it can be solved. But it has to happen then in a, you know, a political environment with a regulatory mechanism that actually works. You need somebody to keep a gas-fired power plant ready to operate as well as backup, even though it won't operate maybe more than 100, 200, 300, 400 hours a year. We've also looked at some further sensitivities to, to the renewal scenario, um, one of them being what if one what if the, the climate ambition is one and a half degrees and not 1.7, 1.8? The other one that I'll talk about first is this, I hope you can see it, that light blue line there. The green line is the CO2 emissions in a renewal case. The light blue line is the sensitivity where we say it doesn't seem completely unlikely that CO2 emissions won't start falling tomorrow. We could actually be in a situation where we, for instance, continue along the reform trajectory to 2025 if we then decide that we have to achieve the 1.7, 1.8 degree target, the carbon budget, the change in CO2 emissions has to be even more rapid. And in a situation where the global economy continues to grow, that's even more of a challenge. We also have to end at the lower level by 2050 to be within the carbon budget because we've spent more of the carbon budget the first five years. Then we have another sensitivity there, the maroon brown line. If we're serious about one and a half degree ambition, the carbon budget that IEA and IPCC has provided us, an example of that would be 40% lower net emissions to 2050. This is very much depending on what you assume around negative emissions and what happens after 2050, but one line would be that one. What it, how could we get there? Well, one way of getting there was to use everything else equal to the renewal case and then add on 15 billion tons of carbon capture and storage. 
which seems pretty impossible by 2030, but some of the IPCC scenarios contain that type of assumptions. Or, to the right there, we show what if we have the same assumption on carbon capture and storage as in a renewal case and have to achieve this by slightly more energy efficiency, 80% more new renewables than we have in a renewal case. So instead of a 12-fold increase, we need a 20-fold increase. Much more nuclear and a further 60% reduction in fossil fuels. And in addition, in this scenario, we also assume that emissions outside of the energy sector develop in the same manner, and that's uh, associated with natural sinks, uh, forestation, agricultural uh, emissions, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So this is a sensitivity. We don't. This, we have not developed this as a full-fledged scenario, but it, what it shows is basically that achieving the 1.7, 1.8 target is an enormous challenge. And you need much more of everything, basically, if you want to go further down. There's no silver bullet that will solve any of these. And the problem is, of course, that we are not moving in the right direction for any of these scenarios at the moment. Then this is how our scenarios, then the results of our scenarios in oil demand, gas demand, and share of solar and wind penetration in the electricity sector. And here we compare that to some of the other scenarios out there, the three IA scenarios, the ExxonMobil, Shell, Sky scenario, BP, uh, some Norwegian, other Norwegian scenarios as well. Um, on oil demand, we feel that we span out sort of what is out there in terms of outcome space. We all have different assumptions and we end up at different results. Um, on gas demand, we might be a bit on the careful side uh, with relatively low demand in the, in the climate uh, consistent scenario compared to IEA as an example. And the flip side of that is then we don't need as much carbon capture and storage to achieve. So, so when you play with these assumptions, when you assume different things, then you see that you have to use different tools to get where you want. And on, on uh, renewable electricity, uh, we're a bit lower than, some, than uh, for instance, the Shell Sky scenario, which is the second from the top at the right there. They have more, even more penetration. They also have much more electricity, but in that scenario, they also have then 5 billion tons of carbon capture and storage by, by 2050. The Bloomberg New Energy Finance last year's report is a spot on our share there in, in 2040. So overall, at least I, th I think it's fair to say that we've, we've dared to be relatively courageous in terms of spanning out an outcome space where, within which the actual development could take place. And we will definitely be wrong, all of us in terms of the actual outcome. And then summarizing it, it should be relatively clear now that achieving a sustainable energy transition is an enormous challenge. That's not a walk in the park. There's no silver bullet that's gonna make it. The development in emerging economies, and particularly in Asia, will determine whether we achieve climate targets or not. Uh, it becomes probably extra more challenging as we have to think about more than one sustainable development goal. We have to think about all 17. They do not always require the same type of development in energy. And the final point I would like to make is that uh, whichever of these scenarios we're in, there's a massive need for further investments in the energy system, irrespective of, of the actual outcome, both for oil and gas, and in particular, so for all kinds of renewable investments with associated technologies. So thank you. Thank you, Eric. This was 
Fantastic. I feel my number one task as a moderator now, moderator now is to uh, cheer us up a little bit, okay? Yeah. Um, e economics is a dismal science, you know? <laughs> um, so let me um, ask a slightly sort of bizarre opening question, but take us through a day in the life of Eric Varnes that a lot of stuff is happening in the world, there's a lot of noise. What are the type of things that are happening out there that make you think, ah, this, this is really good news? Uh, you know, is it, you know, a younger generation in Europe, you know, protesting for climate change? Is it cities banning internal combustion engines? Is it the, you know, the debate here as we go up towards a presidential election and sort of how much climate has become part of the conversation? What are the type of things that you look at on a day-to-day -day basis and say, yeah, they're not enough and we need to be doing more, but this is really good stuff and I want to be seeing more of that and that gets you a little bit more excited and optimistic. Yeah, no, no I, I think, first of all, there's a lot of things happening that, that makes us excited. Um, uh, but I, I think uh, for, for this issue, for the reality of this issue, what, what you need to look for are the, uh, you have to take away the noise of all the talk and, uh, and, uh, and then look at the real uh, changes. Uh, there are some things on the technology side that are, that are exciting. Uh, our belief that we can operate, uh, operate uh, low carbon electricity systems uh, with much higher shares of penetration of something we don't control is increasing because it seems like that technology is developing. Uh, we are moving up the scale of more efficient lithium panels in, in solar, uh, as an example. We're building, we have probably reached almost a limit on how large wind turbines can be onshore, but we're still the potential of building even larger wind turbines offshore and therefore scaling it up, making it more che cheaper and more efficient is a possibility. Um, what the car producers say they have to do and will do in terms of electricity as an alternative on light duty vehicles are, is happening. Uh, the worry is, of course, the scalability of that and, and to what extent we as consumers uh, feel we have a, an opportunity to change behavior. Do we have alternatives? Do we have the charging infrastructure? Do we risk that these electric vehicles just become an extra vehicle on top of what we always do and, and reduce bus, bus traffic instead of, instead of replacing a combustion engine car? On the policy side, the positive signals are mainly where you see some, some actually changes in policies and not only talking about it. And there we still have a, quite a ways to go. Um, the, the difficult thing about the climate change problem is that it's so, it's so long term and it's such a collective issue. It's a sort of the perfect example of the tragedy of the commons. Um, so all the all the consequences of policies enacted now will impact the politicians that, that are way down. It's way beyond the, the, the election periods, if you like. And that, that slows down the willingness to put in place measures that are not overly popular, to put it mildly. And the difficult part on that, where you can become pessimistic again, is uh, all climate policies that work have regressive impacts. So they, they, they harm either the poor or the people, regressive in, in terms of the people that do not have an alternative the most, and therefore makes it difficult. And, and what makes me worry now is that we also see now increased, this, the signals of increased polarization in, in domestic policies, uh, both in Europe and in North America, in international politics as well, is now also visible in climate policy. So, uh, so uh, where we should be excited to engage with the youth 
a strike uh, during Fridays on school for climate change and, and take them seriously, have the dialogue, ask uh, what, what do you think we should change, what do you want to change, what are the things that you don't want to do uh, to, to achieve this, etc., etc. It's sort of balanced by their parents now uh, protesting against uh, congestion pricing, higher diesel taxes, even in Norway. And, and uh, because, because the congestion pricing or a, or a higher diesel price has regressive impacts, and for people who don't have an alternative, it's, it's difficult to adapt. We have protests against uh, wind parks, wind turbine parks in Norway as well. So, that's, uh, so the, on the policy side, it's difficult to find a lot of positivism. Uh, but on the technology side, and I, and I think uh, um, on the willingness to do the th where, where the willingness to do the things that are necessary, both to reduce local pollution and CO2 emissions, that has increased a lot. Also in the emerging economies, I think people see the necessity. But um, but on the other, I mean, the, look at the difficulties of, of solving or finding sort of picking the low-hanging fruits. Look at how difficult it is to get coal out of the electricity mix. That's an example of low-hanging fruits. That is sort of technology, really easy, the ability, and it's difficult to get that done. And in my home country, in Norway, we have never had that option because we don't have any coal or gas in our electricity sector. We're 100% hydroelectric. So we, had, we have enormous difficulties in now seeing how our emissions can come down, and that's because we don't have the low-hanging fruits. We have the difficult issues. Reducing emissions in the transport sector is enormously difficult. Reducing emissions from industry, enormously difficult. Um, one slight asterisk to what you said, uh, I'll be remiss if I don't say this, but we had the, an event this morning uh, on energy in America that my colleague Sarah Ladislaw chaired, and you know, one of the papers that we've commissioned as this long piece of work was looking at how to find ways to make sort of a carbon tax, for instance, not regressive, right? So I think the, mm -hmm. the question of trying to find a way to put a package of policies that can insulate the poorest among us from mm -hmm. the, the impact. So. Uh, those of you who are interested in this topic, I recommend you, you go on our website and, and, and read a little bit more about ways in which we can try to address some of these challenges. Um, let me take you in a slightly different direction now. Um, one of the other conversations we're having a lot here at CSIS is the question of you know, whether business as usual is a thing anymore. Uh, and one of the things that I noticed in your GDP forecast is you know, should we be trying to incorporate the cost of climate change more directly? in our thinking, and how do you sort of grapple with that topic? Well, uh, first of all, we've tried to, to put, I mean, so the, the whole, I mean, the whole idea of how, how quick, uh, how, how do you forecast GDP growth into the future is, is a difficult issue, but, but at least when, when, you take, when you start out with a, sort of the, what, the, what will be a fact is that there will be more labor available. We know the population will grow. Uh, so that means we have labor that will deliver products together. We will have more investments. Uh, next generation is always more beautiful and productive than us, so we will have productivity development. So you have a GDP growth, and then how fast is that? Uh, but it's difficult to forecast, and that can vary. So we put that into the estimates here. Uh, then on climate change, what we've done is that in, both in the reform and the rivalry case, where we do not achieve climate targets, we assume that we gradually will see increasing impact of climate change. So that's in the reform and rivalry case, then by 2035 and onwards, we, we, pull down, we consciously pull down GDP development somewhat to cater for the costs of increasing climate change. If we had taken that beyond 2050, that would have been more of a difference, if you like, between rivalry reform on the one hand 
and renewal on the other. In the renewal case, what we also have done on the GDP case, and this is somewhat, this is probably slightly controversial in, in, in parts of the debate, is that uh, we also assume that the, the, the transition itself will cost something in terms of reduced GDP growth for a period. Uh, so be, because of the speed of transition that is necessary, we will have to take out perfectly functioning energy using capital equipment like a coal-fired power plant well before it's obsolete. Take it out and then invest in something else, in an alternative. So for a period, we actually have sort of investments that are in economic terms not nece necessary, but in climate terms necessary. We will probably make mistakes. We'll probably invest in some things that, where we haven't seen all the potential yet, something, some technology that turns out not to work. So we have consciously taken down the GDP growth in the renewal case somewhat the first 10 years before that speeds up. And at, and at the end, the average growth rate is higher in renewal than in reform. So, but, but I think I think we also have to be aware that in terms of at least prepared for economic development being slightly harmed by our attempts at mitigating climate change. Um, I want to switch a little bit now to gas, um, just to my background is in natural gas, so I always think about natural gas a little bit more than other things. And two challenges that I see in sort of the future of gas, and I think you painted a compelling picture that, you know, in a transition, in a more rapid transition, you, you kind of have to use gas. Uh, but maybe talk about the other two scenarios a little bit more. The two challenges that I see are always competitiveness, hmm. the ability of gas to compete. Um, I was doing some numbers and by by math, about two thirds of the growth and demand over the last sort of eight nine years has come from countries that subsidize gas. The price of gas isn't really reflective of market fundamentals, so there's a real challenge in competitiveness. And on the flip side, um, is the, the continuing question about the environmental credentials of gas, mm -hmm. uh, whether that's methane leakage. The World Bank just put out its report on on gas flaring and. You know, if gas flaring were its own country, would be the fifth largest consumer of gas in the world. That's not good. Mm -hmm. um, and, and obviously, Norway has a lot of experience uh, or, or lessons to learn to teach the world on gas flaring. So walk us through a little bit how you think about the role of gas in particular vis-a-vis -vis these sort of two challenges. Yeah, well, on the one hand, uh, gas uh, is the obvious quick transition alternative in the power sector. Uh, it's, it's what makes it possible to get coal out of the mix, and the United States is the best example of, of that. The UK is the second best example. Um, and you get CO2 emission reductions immediately. Um, on, in terms of the long-term future of gas, first of all, uh, gas is used in many other sectors than, than, uh, than electricity. If you take gas out of some of the hot manufacturing processes and replace that with something else, it's difficult to see what that could be. Uh, if you take more gas out of centralized heating and cooling and stuff, you need much more electricity. So it's also that then you need even more than uh, on that. Um, so you know, and then of course, in some of these industrial processes, we'll end up probably having carbon capture and storage on the use of gas. Um, long term, we and we also have a pathway described, a little bit of a pathway described in in the report. But long term, methane uh, will be a source of hydrogen. Yeah, hydrogen has to be produced. And it's either produced by massive amounts of what is basically stranded electricity, electrolysis, but then we need much more electricity. Or you can, with known technology, convert it from methane today. Uh, the difficulty with that is, well, first of all, it's a cost issue and a, and a carbon price would have to help you there. Uh, 
but we also need carbon capture and storage. And the, net, and the net impact of moving methane into hydrogen with CCS is that we reduce emissions, but we need more CCS. So that's a little bit on the sort of on the long term and, and developing hydrogen, uh, hydrogen economy is something that we try somewhere different in different places of the world. Some countries are more eager than others because they need more hydrogen probably. Um, but it's a long, it's also something that doesn't happen tomorrow. And then of course, uh, the, the issues on, on, uh, the, on avoiding methane to leak into the atmosphere is something that the industry is working on. Uh, we have, we have hardly any, or very, very small issues on that in, in Western Europe. Uh, it ha and that has to do with framework conditions, it has to do with, with uh, regulations. Uh, uh, it has to do with, in the Norwegian sector, then we've also had a ban on flaring, basically, since we started. So we've been forced to, to do something with the gas. We only flare for emergency purposes. And that was part of what drove the development of the of the pipeline system that we have in the European gas market basically so it's uh, so it, I mean, that can be done um, and then of course the focus on on methane emissions has to be has to be the same for all industries also the coal industry have to think about their methane emissions but, uh, but I know we, there's no we have to there's no quick fix we've got to do all of this um, let me do a final one and then I'll come to you so get ready for for your questions um, you talked a little bit about this in passing, so I wanted to see if you could elaborate on sort of energy access, the idea of energy poverty. What are you, you know, one of the critiques of sort of long-term outlooks is that the poorest sort of bear a disproportionate impact and they just never quite get enough energy to really uh, increase their living standards. Tell us a little bit how you grapple with that question. What are you, what kind of assumptions are you making about energy use and um, emerging economies. Yeah, well, it's a, uh, that's where the GDP uh, growth and, and increase in household consumption abilities uh, mainly are coming from. Uh, we assume that uh, that uh, emerging economies gradually will and slowly will catch up with uh, with uh, the OECD average, if you like, in terms of purchasing power. Uh, that will drive energy demand, and it's one of the reasons why this energy transition is so enormously difficult. Even if, uh, even if OECD countries, as as uh, what is what is part of the scenarios here, is that uh, the OECD countries will have to reduce our CO2 emissions by 80 uh, percent. The challenge is to avoid an increase and not not to, not to say to, to achieve a decrease in the emissions in some of the emerging economies. And, and energy access to energy, access to clean energy, getting the Indians and the Africans out of biomass and into something else that is not carbon, uh, that is not coal, that is. Uh, at some point, not gas without without it being hydrogen, enormously challenging. Um, when you use these transition, these traditional measures of primary energy demand, it might look more difficult than it is, and that's why electricity is so important because uh, renewable electricity, electricity as a gen in general, is a very efficient source of, of energy, and, and it makes it possible to deliver more energy-related services with lower amounts of primary energy demand. Uh, than otherwise would have been the case. So that's why this electrification assumption is, is important. We have, and we have an example in the report where we, we speculate about access to energy in Africa. And, and uh, where you, I mean, if electrification is, is part of the solution, then you, can, you could see that energy use per capita doesn't have to go up in order to deliver much, better, much improvement in, in lifestyles. 
but you have to have much more electricity. So decentralized solar and wind renewables, et cetera, et cetera, is, is one aspect of making that possible, at least in terms of lighting and sort of immediate needs for electricity. Fantastic. So we'll uh, get your questions now. Three simple rules here at CSIS. Number one, wait for the mic. Number two, please identify yourself. Number three, question the form of a question. Okay, who wants to start first? Sir. Uh, right. Adam Siegel, Insight Through Analysis. Thank you very much for the presentation. You're one of the very rare organizations that shows the economy going up with uh, going down a renewable path. And it looks, it sounds like that you, in essence, just made some estimates and forced them in. Did you also look at uh, issues such as productivity goes up with greening, reduced health impacts, and other such issues that might drive a boosted economy via a cleaner energy system? Yes. That's, part of, that's one of the reasons why economic growth in the renewal case is higher, and in particular relative to the rivalry case, where we also accounted for some productivity, negative productivity impact of local pollution and the things that you don't get out of. So that's, that's one part, and, and the impact of that is slightly larger in some of the emerging economies, typically, than in, than in other countries. So it's, uh, but it's, uh, it's guesswork, right? But it is within, it's within our modeling ability that we do into the total factor of productivity of GDP or into the, uh, the, the productivity development in different sectors. That, but that's where we think that it has an impact, sort of the, the, both the life quality, life expectancy of labor, workforce uh, ability to deliver labor, et cetera, et cetera. So that's, that's at least the thinking. Whether we get it right is another story, but it's, uh, but it's something that we take into account. Doug, right here in the front. Uh, Doug Hengel with Johns Hopkins SICE. When you introduced the renewal scenario, you said that we need a miracle now. Is that miracle along the lines of policy, action, political commitment, or is there a technology component to that? Do we need a miracle on the technology side too, or is it some combination of those things? Mm. No, I, I think uh, if you look at the technology changes that we sort of implicitly have built into the scenario without being very explicit about what that is, that is more a gradual miracle. It's, I mean, in order to, anything you can think of in terms of smart demand management, uh, new, new technologies on the electricity side, et cetera, is probably within, hidden within the, that energy intensity assumption. And, and uh, in, there's a black swan pot potential out there on the technology side, which, which uh, which would be something like cold fusion, et cetera, which is not in model. Uh, and the problem with, with that is that even if it happened tomorrow, it, it would be so difficult to scale up sufficiently fast. So, so what we have on the technology side is a gradual miracle, if you like. Uh, no, so what, when I say that, what I mean is a political miracle uh, in the sense that we need, we need a significant change in, in the ability to set measures, to agree with measures that could actually drive us in the right direction towards the targets. And, and we have talked enough about targets. Now it's about to start. And we don't help the discussion by making the perfect the enemy of the good, which is the risk that we're playing when we sort of, we, we, we just leave old targets behind us, we move to newer, tougher targets, and then we talk a lot about them. We have an ambition that we keep talking about, and then the, while the development is going in the wrong direction. So, so we need a miracle, and we need it among the largest players. Things like 
uh, what the Nobel laureate in economics who got the prize the same day as the IPCC report came out is advocating, William Nordhaus is advocating uh, a, a, a kind of a carbon club. The problem with the Paris agreement is that it's voluntarily. Uh, so if you're the EU, you have no, there's no measure there to penalize countries that don't agree on those types of measures in the form of an, a carbon tax on imports. That's one aspect of this. How do we do that? Uh, it's, about, it's about the large economies in the world making it visible for consumers that you have an incentive to change behavior. And that means putting a crop. And the most obvious one is to make sure we have a price on carbon. If, if this is the biggest problem, that's what it is. And then, of course, you have to think about measures, how, how to do that and all that stuff. And, and the miracle is also that, um, I mean, this is not something we write about in the report, but, but fundamentally, um, if, we're concerned with, if we're concerned with the regressive impact of climate policies that, don't, that work, now, one, one reason that it's difficult to handle those, also politically, is that we're generally not very good at handling progressive taxation or, regress or stopping regressive impacts. And in a, in a situation where a lot of the polarization now is driven by inequality, how do, how do we then think we can do this on carbon taxation if we don't do it on other types? Of, so, so it's a political miracle. It's an agreement, in uh, same kind of agreement as in Paris, in Chile, in December, but associated with measures and not targets. I love the idea of the gradual miracle. I'm trying to, to, to decide what that theologically <laughs> what that looks like. Um, but uh, yes. Uh, and please keep your hands up for like a mix. Okay, let's start from there and then we'll come back. Uh, my name's Karen St. John, retired from BP. I was wondering, since you started doing these presentations, um, in particular to governments, are you sensing any change from four or five years ago to today that, yes, we do need to start taking action? I, th I think the, um, the, I, the change that I see is, uh, if I see that, I think generally the, the willingness the willingness to do something has been there. Uh, I, I guess that the re realization that that these targets become tougher to reach is gradually coming upon us across the spectrum and in any political setting that I happen to be. Um, uh, what is changing, I think, or, or maybe 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 what is also increasing is the frustration of the difficulty of being able to do anything about it. And that has to do uh, on the, it is, I mean, it, this is a massive system. Uh, and it's something that is growing. Uh, energy has fantastic impact. So, so uh, everybody is aware, if you think about it, everybody is aware of the, the impact of energy of people's well-being. And, and if you're not, then you should travel to a place where there is no energy available. So it's, so it's, the, it's that balance of, of the urgency of making sure that the 300 million Indians that do not have electricity get access to electricity, while at the same time being able to do something about the overall emission. And, and that sort of the frustration of not being able to do anything. And, and now I, I would presume, I would be frustrated if I were a politician on, on now seeing the polarization also in, when climate policy starts to bite. Now we meet it there as well. 
So, so, uh, so, but, uh, but it is uh, any individual party or individual politician or individual decision makers, decision maker is facing the reality that this is so fundamentally a collective issue. We have to do this together. And nobody has the power alone to do a lot that matters. Go ahead. Okay. Uh, let's come right here. Robert Kleinberg, Boston University and Columbia University. Is there a uh, rational way of calculating the social cost of carbon that does not depend so exquisitely on parameters like the discount rate? <laughs> I, I don't think so. It's a, a, um, I mean, whether it's, I mean, philosophically, I guess uh, we, we would have you. I mean, you you would have to weigh consequences way into the future and measure that against something. Uh, and if it doesn't have any impact today, uh, then you know you don't have to worry how much about how you weigh those consequences against against each other. But one way of doing that is a discount rate. And and to the extent that uh, that I have to change behavior uh, in order to. Uh, address these uh, social, the, the, the negative consequences of future emissions uh, or future climate change. And we, have, we, need, we can't get out of that conundrum. Um, and then of course the question is, uh, should we, are the discount rates we use too high or too low? And, and how, and, but then we, as economists, we don't have an alternative to make sensitivity analysis about how, what, what would the social cost of carbon be on, with different types of discount rates. So it's, uh, and, and there is a discount rate out there. I mean, every, if, you, if you interview people or you do, I mean, at, uh, both at Boston and Columbia, I, I think you use uh, games, you, you, you use uh, you set, settings where you actually let people reveal their preference rates and discount rates, right? So, so there is, uh, we, we, we do value things in the short term differently from in the long term. And, and that's one of the, one of the difficulties of this in a politi political con setting is also that the, the people that will have to carry the burden or the transition are the constituencies that this decides the next president, presidential elections. The ones that are the victims, if we don't do anything, haven't been born yet, or at least don't vote. So it's, uh, so it is, uh, we can't get away from that problem. It, it's, it's a very hard problem, yes. Uh, let's go to the gentleman right here. Hi, Blake Wilcox. I'm um, an MA candidate at Georgetown and a research intern at the Caspian Policy Center here in DC. I didn't hear any mention of nuclear power um, in your presentation. And um, though a lot of developed countries have become quite negative on it, especially Germany and Japan, there are um, efforts to build nuclear plants in a number of developing countries. I'm interested to hear what sort of assumptions you used around nuclear um, in the different cases, and particularly uh, what differences between the different cases uh, did you incorporate in your research? Thank you. Yeah, no, no, I, I didn't show it. I, I think I mentioned it barely, but, but, but um, no, what we see is that in order, I mean, in the energy mix that delivers the results, both in the reform rivalry and the renewal case, we need growth in nuclear electricity generation globally. 30% in the rivalry case, 40% in, in the reform case, and 80% in the renewal case. And that takes place in a situation where the capacity and generation, both in North America and Europe, goes down. 
So we believe the French government, when they will face out something, we believe the Belgians and the Germans and the Swedes will face out all. Uh, we think North American capacity will go down because most of the nuclear capacity is getting very old. Um, and the problem now is that the costs of new modern nuclear is too high and it's being competed out by, by renewables, as an example. But in order to get uh, an electricity system operating in the countries which have massive amounts of coal-fired electricity that has to go out quickly, and then also where you cannot rely on a lot of gas towards the end, we, will need, we think we need to see nuclear. We need modern nuclear in emerging economies in Asia. They are building at the moment, and they will, that will have to speed up. And of course, in a renewal scenario, you could also think that in that type of scenario, benign geopolitical uh, uh, climate, et cetera, et cetera. It, there's reason to, every reason to believe that all the world's best efforts in putting in place a, nu a modern nuclear fleet in these countries is what's going to happen. So that's, a, so, and, and, and so the technology transfers that are necessary is the best in the world, irrespective of where it's, the, where it's invented. So if the Chinese invent the best nuclear capacity, that's, go, that's the one that is going to be built also in the rest of the world where they need it. So, but up to 80% increase. And of course, that's one of the, if you don't believe that's possible, then uh, the challenge goes back to you, then find, out, find, find the other alternative ways to get CO2 emissions sufficiently down. Because that, I mean, that's, it's one, one of the pieces in, in a very large number of, of variables that have to deliver this. And in the back. Hi, uh, my name is Armand Kerpoyan. I'm a law clerk with the Department of Commerce. Uh, so my question has to do with uh, if policy changes, it will force industry to change just because legal rules will change behavior. But as a micro example, in the United States, when oil prices go down, car companies tend to produce larger cars which consume more oil. And you also cited the example of the refrigerator. So people tend to consume more energy when energy becomes cheaper. Do you see private industry as a step below policy coordinating with each other? So energy providers coordinating with car companies as a necessity for emissions to come down or something that will happen in the future? Well, I, I think, for, first of all, I think, uh, I think uh, um, there's a lot of things happening in, in the energy industry globally now. Uh, partly driven by framework conditions changing, uh, partly, mostly driven by technologies developing, and also driven by uh, increased focus from different kinds of stakeholders. So, and, and visibly so in, our, so in our case for the upstream energy industry, but I think things are happening also in the automotive industry as an example, and, and, and the air, air industry, et cetera, et cetera. Um, then where, where, the, uh, where the challenge is the biggest is to make sure that consumers have the right incentives also to change behavior when that becomes possible. And that's where probably the, the biggest problem is in terms of framework conditions. Um, and, then, and then of course what you're pointing at is, is, uh, is uh, an enormous challenge behind, uh, behind the assumptions in, in, in things like the rivalry scenario here is that when we fundamentally get energy being much cheaper at the margin, uh, we are richer, uh, then we tend to use more. And if you take, take a look at, uh, so far at least in macro, every consequence of digitalization uh, and, uh, and all, those, all the aspects of that has been increased energy demand. 
my dad drove me around in a one-ton steel can in 1970, a Peugeot 404, used one liter per 10 kilometers. I don't know what that is per miles per gallon, but if I put my combustion engine into that car, it would have used 0.2, five times as efficient. But then my car is twice as heavy. The tires are twice as wide, so I have four times the friction. Air conditioning has been invented even in European cars, right? So I use much more energy within the car. Uh, and and uh, as a consequence, uh, I use 0.6. So I've taken out half of the efficiency gain by comfort and size and use and whatever. And that's within this. And then how do you, how do you avoid that from happening? How do you make sure that the cars don't weigh two tons, three tons? How do you, will we allow anybody to own a Hummer privately? What's the likelihood of a neighbor living next to a Hummer owner buying a Fiat 500 and, and hope you survive the next crash? Right? So, so, so what type of materials do we need to, to make things lighter, more efficient? I think one thing that, that could change, which we haven't modeled maybe implicitly a little bit, but one black swan here is future consumers changing behavior. Uh, so, so not moving their body uh, to work uh, on vacations. You have what is called staycation. So, but, it, but it's not here. That's, I mean, where that is determined is what the middle class, future middle class in Asia will do. When they have the same purchasing power as us, will they then use as much energy? Will they buy petroleum products buy a plane ticket to Nepal, climb the Mount Everest, leave all the plastic weights on, it, on their way down and then fly home again? Or will they do something that is more sustainable? So, so and if that happens, and to some extent it probably does in this renewal scenario, but, but if it happens more, it could become an easier change. One of the things that was interesting, uh, I, I just wrote a little piece on our website about commuting in the United States. And, uh, and the basic question was whether or not there's a big shift in how people commute to work. And for all the change in you know, Uber and transportation and all that, the main change was that more people work from home in the last 10 years yeah. in the US. Yeah. So it's a, it's a behavior, right? it's a sort of company policy, it's attitudes yeah. change rather than... But, it, but if we have a road congestion pricing that works so that the, the, the congestion is not there, then you would drive instead, right? So the, the, I mean, it, because one of the reasons you work from home is that you don't bother with the commute. So. No, but, but I, no, I think, I think that's... You've ruined uh, it for me, right? <laughs> no, 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 no. But I, and I think, I mean, some of the cities that, that have to be built uh, to, to cater for urbanization and increased population growth in emerging economies in particular um, will, will have public transportation systems uh, that makes it possible to have modern middle-class lives in 2050 without using a car, at least not owning a car, using much less cars, using public transportation systems, and probably working more from home as well. And, uh, and then the question is, if you work more from home, does, does, do you live next door to your office as well? So, and then you meet the boss in, uh, in the shop after work as well. I mean, uh, that's, uh, is that a lifestyle that we will have, et cetera? So, but uh, I, spent a lot of, but I spent a lot of time in Barcelona, which was one example of cities compared to Atlanta in the Calderon report some ways, years back. It's the same size of city in terms of, uh, Atlanta has probably passed it now, but it was the same size of city in terms of people. The average per capita energy use in Barcelona is one-fifth of that in Atlanta. And of course, the reason is the size of houses, the, the distances between houses, the sort of the, the urban sprawl, uh, the fantastic public transportation system, um, 
and the fact that in Barcelona you have 50 to 60 square meters of apartment that's where you so so that type of and Barcelona is not a bad place to be <laughs> so but of course having built Atlanta it takes a while to make it into Barcelona so so change it so 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 that's one of the one of the issues here is of course that most cities are already built but it's, uh, but for the new ones uh, that type of thinking that type of modeling probably has to be part of the picture and, and I do find that uh sort of city layout and urban planning is one of the sort of underappreciated aspects of the conversations we have in energy. Mm -hmm. um, we're running close to time. I know there are two or three people. Uh, can we take them all one, two, three together and then uh, do a final round for yes. Eric? So start from the last row. Hi, uh, my name is Ryosuke Hanafusa from Nikkei. Um, I want to ask about a question about uh, the U.S.-Chinese uh, relationship in this context. Like, uh, in the past, uh, during the Obama administration, the U.S. and China had an agreement about uh, uh, CO2 uh, emissions. And uh, I think that was... Uh, so how do you evaluate that uh, regarding avoiding this rivalry? scenario and in the future if we have a democratic president again and if there is to be like a, a u.s chinese agreement again do you think that would be uh, significant to avoid the rivalry scenario okay let's go next him hey um anders patterson natural resource governance institute uh, thanks a lot for your presentation um we've the, the debate around the energy transition has tended to focus a lot on the IOCs, uh, but 55% of all oil and gas is produced by national oil companies. Um, those are governed very differently. Uh, there's a big diversity. Uh, for some, we don't even know the assets. For some, we have financial disclosures. For others, we don't. Um, how has your different, how do the different scenarios play out in terms of expecting behavior from the NOCs uh, that could be doing heavy investments that could strand or reduce price of oil in the, in the long run? And then a second question, uh, a bit following on that, Sub-Saharan Africa, we have a not, lots of countries who are looking at potentially becoming gas producers, but we also have a lot of, um, of lack of energy access have you, uh, have you looked at all in the scenarios at how Sub-Saharan Africa is gonna catch up on energy access, the mix of renewables, gas, et cetera? Thank you. Jenny Mandel with Andy News. Um, I had the same question about uh, Sub-Saharan Africa, just what the assumptions are that are baked in, if it's sort of very slow, steady growth, or if there's a significant uh, jump in energy access. Um, my main question, though, was in the delay scenario. You mentioned that to get delay plus renewal, you basically wait a few years and then bolt on more miracles, you know, more CCS, more energy efficiency. If you don't add that stuff, what does the delay scenario look like? So if you don't force it to comply with the targets, then uh, what does that come out looking like? Okay, Thank fantastic. You. So U.S.-China relations, IOCs mm -hmm. versus NOCs. Sub-Saharan Africa, you're always kind of like straddling those two worlds. Sub-Saharan Africa, delay. Delay. Yeah, on, well, I, I guess the, the U.S.-China relationship um, is one example of the current geopolitical situation that makes it difficult to, to believe that it's very conducive to climate change because it can slow down some of the, some of the necessary changes. Uh, and uh, I'm definitely not an expert for the re on the reasons behind those uh, difficult relationships. Uh, 
But um, but uh, suffice to say that if that type of uh, it's I mean we we. I live in the neighboring country with Russia as well. We have Russia as a country where there are sanctions in place. Uh, so we've continued protectionism, sanctions continue to play a role. Um, then it will be, make it more difficult to get this uh, at least necessary movement at top level from the states that is necessary to drive this transition. Uh, you can still get a lot of good climate policies, energy and, and climate policies at state level, et cetera, et cetera. So, so, and the markets will continue to develop there. And, and one of the paradoxes could be that in a, more of a protectionist atmosphere, you could actually foresee uh, increased likelihood of carbon taxation at, on border uh, movements, so imports of carbon as well. Uh, which would help in some sense, but, but, but then again, probably increase the level of conflict. So, so how that develops, it's, it's a little bit of crossing our fingers, and, 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 I, and I, would, I would stress that I don't see, it, it's not only the relationship between the United States and China that ideally should have been slightly different if you're focusing on climate change. There are some, many, many other dimensions in this as well. Um, the role of the NOCs, um, Well, in one, sen in, the, in one sense, of course, it's, uh, it's, um, it's a reflection also of the role of the nations that own the NOCs, right? And, and uh, getting, getting a global agreement on the need to reduce fossil fuel demand uh, from the coal-producing nations to the oil-producing nations to the gas-producing nations, and in particular those that are very dependent on those types of exports, is a big challenge. And, and what you have to assume is that once you get that, if in the renewal case, when you get that agreement at country level, the national oil companies will, first of all, not, not act <laughs> against that, but of course also use the opportunities that are within the market. They are market actors like everybody else. Saudi Aramco is doing a lot in terms of energy efficiency, in terms of renewables as well, and they're testing out it. They're, so the Aramco is a member of the, uh, of the OGCI, which is the 13 uh, oil companies now together with PetroChina, I guess one of the Chinese as well, that are also looking at ways of achieving this. So, so, but also the, in that renewal scenario, as an example, the countries that are the owners of the biggest national oil companies, or at least some of them, are also the countries where we depend on on, uh, very much on the remaining oil and gas supply. We have, we, you have to, in, in, a, in a scenario with much lower oil demand and therefore lower oil supply, a lot of that oil will come from countries which have the lowest cost oil, that's smart for all of us, uh, that has the most carbon efficient oil, that is generally the case with uh, some countries plus the Middle East, etc. So, And also it probably makes it easier to finance the tr transition and have the acceptance among the NOC owning countries that this is a good thing because they get them to maximize their revenues. And of course, you have to add on financial mechanisms to make that happen as well. So, so in that sense, then, but of course, uh, the, the moment you allow somebody to, to act very differently, then the likelihood of a renewal scenario then being consistent over time becomes lower. Uh, Sub-Saharan Africa, um, it's, well, first of all, that is, it's, a it's an extremely mixed picture between different countries, both in terms of level of development, economic growth, population development, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and in our modeling apparatus, uh, our ability to model each of those countries differently is basically non-existent. Uh, but what we see is, of course, um, 
the difficult balance in general in that region with population growth that outpaces energy demand growth. So energy use per capita doesn't increase. But increased electrification is one, going out of extremely inefficient polluting biomass into electricity, and in particular then <laughs> renewable electricity or modern electricity, allows, could allow for quality of life improvements even though the primary energy demand per capita doesn't grow. So of course, so, so, so the, the need for modernizing the energy system in a region that will almost double in, in population is enormous. Uh, and it's one of the key development issues. If, if you're concerned with many of the sustainable development goals, the focus should be on Africa in addition to some other countries. So, so that's, uh, and, in, and I guess what we all should hope for is the potential for gas developments in East Africa uh, being a good uh, opportunity for East Africa. Uh, that they, they're able to develop those resources in a manner that's, that also both allows for increased electrification, significant public revenues, and more rapid developments. But, uh, but that's not a given. It's something we should, all should strive for. The delay, if it doesn't happen with, uh, with, with the, the types of things that we put in there, then it doesn't happen, in a, in a sense. Or, or then, then we don't reach it. Uh, then we continue, and, and remember that the reform development is not business as usual. So, so when we, so I mean, the types, of, it's not a given that every country will be able to deliver on their nationally determined contributions. So, so, so the, we have significant growth in renewables. We have massive growth in electric vehicles in a reform case as well. Uh, in that scenario, we haven't, but I, I guess if that would be pointing in the direction of something like 2.8 to 3% warming, depending on the trajectory after 2050. I would have to check that with, with, uh, with IEA and IPCC. But, uh, but, uh, so it's, uh, but it's, not a, it's definitely not a business as usual. It's a scenario that delivers a lot of very good scores on sustainable development goals. Also, you have to remember that. So, uh, and, and if we, but if you're even more concerned about reaching the climate target, but you see the development going along that reform case, then at some point you have to question whether we can do it with continued economic growth at the level that we put in there, two and a half percent. But then again, how do you then eradicate poverty, get clean water for everybody, ensure gender equality, do, do all the sustainable development, education for everybody, needs lightning, needs economic development, et cetera, et cetera. So, so that whole picture, then have, we have to redo that, if you like. Well, on that note, thank you so much, Eric. This was a fantastic conversation. Please, thank, please join me in thanking Eric. Thank you. Thanks.
Thank you.